What is he doing? Planning his funeral. He wants that as his hearse. You always said, Mummy, that you couldn't do the job without Papa by your side. That he's your strength and stay. And Camilla is my strength and my stay. I couldn't do it without her. I will reflect on it. Take advice and give you an answer soon. Thank you. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode. We've taken you behind the scenes, spoken to so many of the wonderful creatives involved and immersed ourselves in the stories. On this episode, we'll be saying farewell to The Crown by diving into the final episode of season six titled Sleep, Deary Sleep. After 30 years together, Charles decides the time has come to propose to Camilla, but can't do so without his mother's permission. The Queen seeks the approval of the church, state and Charles' sons before giving her sign-off to the marriage. But having been unsettled by discussions surrounding her own funeral planning, the Queen starts to consider her reign and ultimately her legacy. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode 10 yet, you'd better watch it now or very soon. Coming up in this episode of The Crown, the official podcast. I'll sit down with Olivia Williams to talk about Camilla's journey in this season. She really started off in such a dark place and has kept her counsel and kept her head when all about her were losing theirs. She's an example to us all. The research team fill us in on the complicated road to Charles and Camilla's historic wedding. It has to be a civil ceremony with a religious blessing afterwards. You had this juxtaposition of terms that meant that essentially the wedding was a theoretical impossibility. And of course, we couldn't finish the season without sitting down one final time with writer and creator of The Crown, Peter Morgan. I suppose the things I'm most proud of are the very human hurdles you have to overcome to actually make something like this. But first, let's kick off this episode with someone who's been a huge part of The Crown since the very beginning. Director of photography, Adriano Goldman. Adriana, we're so happy that you're here to talk about your wonderful work as DOP, Director of Photography, Cinematographer on The Crown, award-winning. You must have like multiple shelves with all the awards you've won for the show on there. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you mind if we go back though and talk about how you <clears throat> how you first started? No, not at all. On the crime. Well, I met Stephen in Rio in 20, 2012. Stephen Daldry. Stephen yeah. Daldry. Yeah. So he was developing this feature film uh, called Trash because we did it together. I was already a big fan because... I mean, Billy Elliot is something that it's on my top five uh, list anyway. And so it was just, a, I said, whatever he's doing, you know, let's let's try, try to be available. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, so he came to Rio. We did Trash. It uh, was an amazing experience. Uh, so he comes back in 14 to release the movie. 
And I remember that by then I had read something about Netflix and Peter Morgan and Audrey developing something together. And by luck, I had already worked with Peter Morgan on 360, a feature film that Fernando Meirelles directed. So he knew who I was. And so Stephen came to Rio for the premiere. And I said, so what is this thing you're developing? (laughs) He said, why do you want to know? I said, well, because I absolutely loved working with you and I really sincerely hope that's not the only one. And and so, oh, if you want to do it, it's yours. I mean, honestly, in seconds. And I was like a little bit skeptical. I mean, uh, this cannot be that easy. You know, this Brazilian DOP moving to London to shoot a a series about the royal family. I mean, that's absolutely not part of my background. And But I think maybe that was one of the reasons they chose me. I mean, just for this kind of a fresh approach. And I think there was, if there was something very specific we discussed about season one was kind of the less is more sort of philosophy. I mean, we... We felt that by then the majority of the TV shows that were available were a little too cutty, a little too pacey. Yeah. So maybe one of the things that we could t- try to reestablish was a kind of a more filmic grammar where you don't need too much fat. You can concentrate on the dialogues. You can, you know, give the actors time yeah. to perform yeah. and the audience time enough to actually read the performances and even like learn something, you know, about yeah. history and the politics and Absolutely. relationship between the this young queen and, and Churchill and etc. So that was a very clear discussion. I remember us discussing that this shouldn't be between brackets, Hollywood-like or too glamorous or too glossy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was just after the Second World War. So we knew London was in kind of a bad shape and even the palace was supposed to be run down. So it was kind of the anti-glamour approach. Yeah. And I really liked that because I myself have this need to believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always about trying to make it more believable. And I think we succeeded on season one. It's, uh, it's a low pace sort of season. And I think that we achieved what we achieved mainly because we gave the actors, we gave Claire Foy screen time to shine. Throughout the seasons, you feel there's going to be like an increase in pace and they turn little by little, a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more cutty and pacey. The show has evolved, but I think there's still a very clear visual mark, you know, that you can relate to and, and follow. There'll be people listening to this who are kind of like, what does, what is the, what's the craft of a DOP? How would you describe? Well, thanks for asking because nobody knows. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's really strange. I mean, people really don't know what we Tell do. Tell us. <laughs> so I'd say that the main creative collaborators of a director are the production designer and the DOP. The production designer is responsible for designing sets, finding locations, dressing locations. So there's a lot of work for the art department. The camera department that the the director of photography run includes, so camera equipment, meaning cameras, lenses, camera movement, meaning cranes, dollies, dollies, steady cam shots, and lighting. Mm -hmm. So I, on a show like The Crown, my crew, all combined, grips, sparks, and camera people. Probably we're talking about something like 60 people. Whoa. So there's a lot of management. And then effectively on a shooting day, so I'm lighting it. 
you know, as discussed throughout prep. And then you rehearse, you try to create a choreography and understand the movements, you know, the actors are going to mm-hmm. do for a specific scene. Then you try to break that choreography into shots or bricks, like I call it. And then you discuss eventually, so how many shots you need to be able to cover that dialogue or that action scene or whatever. Mm. And then we start to shooting it and and then the discussion about sizes and lenses and, you know, wide angle lenses versus, versus long lenses. And how does that change the depth of field and how much that, uh, gives more relevance to the actor or separates the actor from the background. So this is all a little bit of a science that we we have to discuss because you can tell the same story in so many different ways. And also to be able to keep whatever grammar you establish at the very beginning, to keep it consistent is one of my main jobs. Episode 10. It's the big finale. It's the big goodbye. What were the conversations you had with Stephen kind of going into this and the vision to close this whole thing? Stephen elevates, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know, whatever he's doing. So because of his theatre background, there's also an an interesting way of understanding the space, the physical space. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, scene by scene, there's always a little bit of magic or a little bit of magic realism that he loves and he always brings to the to the show. I mean, very specific moments between the other queens, right? Yeah. Imelda, the, the current queen, is struggling in a way that she kind of sometimes feels like she agrees with Charles that the monarchy needs some sort of a refreshment, a little bit of renovation. Mm-hmm. So she struggles to write this speech. And again, brilliantly, Peter builds this kind of, I'm going to say, suspense or fake suspense, because we all know she's not going to resign. But like there's a there's this kind of a, ooh, maybe now, you know, I've been here for 50 years, so maybe it's time for me to resign, etc. So he creates and Stephen then drives that absolutely brilliantly. Any Melda, of course, the performances. So you really think for a few moments that, you know, maybe, you know, let's reread history yeah. and then just give the crown a different finale. Of course, that's not what happens. But um, <laughs> And also, the, again, the magic realism of having the queen talking to her younger self, you know, separately. So she talks to Claire Foy and then she talks to uh, Olivia. And then there's a moment where they all come together. Um, Were they all there on the day when you filmed it then? Yeah. No way! No, I mean, I mean we did too. So we did. Imelda and Claire yeah. uh, at the location we used for Windsor Castle. Yeah. Then we did another scene with Imelda and Olivia Coleman. So these are all thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the, the, the younger queen talking to the current queen. Yeah. Are you sure you don't want to do this? Yeah. Are you sure you, you know, are you sure you're balanced enough to write this speech or just think about it. So it's a, it's a kind of a more like an internal dialogue, but it's just wonderful. And again, the way Stephen choreographs the whole thing. So they never face to face because Imelda doesn't want to face her own self. So she, she's always kind of avoiding the eye to eye contact. And this is a hundred percent Stephen. And then he comes with those ideas and no, 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 they're not going to look to each other mm-hmm. until they do. Monarchy is something you are, not what you do, 
The crown is a symbol of permanence, of stability, of continuity. If you step down, you will be symbolizing instability and impermanence. You'll also be indicating the luxury of choice, which is the one thing we cannot have if we claim the crown is also our birthright. So you would have a superannuated old lady running the show while a fit, energetic Prince of Wales watches on, straining at the leash. But I don't see you as decrepit. Since the Jubilee, since Mummy's death, I see you as liberated. Confident. You say that Charles is in his prime. Well, I see you in yours. What was the wedding like to film? Because yeah, imagine you know, that idea of lots of extras in a happy environment, you know, as well, and 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 kind of a celebration in that way sort of thing. How was Well, funnily enough, I mean, the, the episode is so epic by nature, the yeah. way it's written, mm. that we didn't actually need a, a massive uh, kind of a wedding ceremony. Yeah. So we show the audience, Yeah. look, they got married, you see them there, you see the queen watching them and et cetera, et cetera. But it's not a big event as we've seen before on The Crown. Well, it's always that thing that Peter's always said that everything always has to come back to the queen. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, even around Charles and Camilla's wedding, it's, it's about her moment. It's about the speech and what she's going to say, what she's not going to say. What were the conversations, Stephen, about how you how to shoot that, that sort of part of it and what, what you kind of both wanted to tell? I don't think we discussed specific ways of framing mm. Imelda, but I think naturally we thought that we should be more with her. I mean, even like going, almost like going back to seasons one and two sort of style, where you are physically close to the actor. Yeah. So instead of lensing up, or maybe or what I mean is moving the camera away from the actor and using longer lenses to achieve your mid-shots and close-ups, you actually move the camera closer to the actors and you shoot your close-ups or your tight coverage on 40 mils or 50 mils. So you do feel almost like a physical connection with your actor. You know, we kind of go back to the, the old institution, you mm -hmm. know, the crown and the queen. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a conflict, internal conflict, yeah. but we should somehow back to the less is more sort yeah, of, yeah, of yeah, yeah. philosophy. I suppose one has to start these things with an introduction. For those of you who don't know me, I am the mother of the groom. <laughs> so how was the crown for you, looking back on it? Well, it literally changed my life and my career. So I did the first two seasons as kind of a guest DOP, so they used to give me a work permit, accommodation, tickets, etc. So you come as a, liter literally as a guest. Then between seasons two and three, when I committed to season three, I managed to change my status to a more permanent one. I moved to the UK. We're all here now, me, my partner, my kids. My kids worked on The Crown now, season six, both of my kids as no well. No way. So one is on the art department, the other one is on the camera department. So Following in dad's it footsteps. Really, it really changed, <laughs> it really changed wow. everything. I started on The Crown, it was May 2015. And I we, we wrapped on the 25th of April, 2023. So eight years of my life. Wow. I'm never gonna forget or 
mean, it really is a special, yeah, oh. special, a special child <laughs> for me, a special baby. And now, if there's one character who's really turned it around, it's Camilla. From the target of hate to a historic royal bride, let's hear from the Crown's own Camilla, Olivia Williams. Olivia, it's great to have you back to talk about the final season of The Crown. Yay! How does it, I mean, it's done, you're, you're finished. How, how does it feel that it's done? Well, playing Camilla is quite like being Camilla and that you weren't invited to any of the big family occasions. So The Crown for me was occasionally being driven to a muddy field somewhere in Gloucestershire and talking on the phone for a bit. And I'm really sad that's over. <laughs> um, but the last week just was surreal, you know, just this past week, which culminated in the rap party on Saturday at the Natural History Museum, and then sitting here with you after marrying Dominic West 11 or 12 times in three different locations, all of which were incredibly beautiful and moving for me. Uh, It was surreal and beautiful. And I was there for the knees up party and felt in, in the, you know, main street of Rochester Old Town, And I just felt like a fraud because there were people who'd worked day and night for 10 years, (laughs) hand stitching clothing and uh, and adjusting lights on the likes of me. And uh, I just turned up for the party, really. But it was magical. Yeah. You're Camilla bookends the season with parties, to be honest, which is lovely. We'll get to the end party in a second. But in episode one, it's celebrating Camilla's. 50th birthday, a big moment for Charles. And it's a real drive for him to have the Queen there and have her blessing. Is that important to Camilla, the character? The way I played it was what Peter wrote, which Mm. which I feel has been borne out by what we see and know of her, was that acceptance and, and all the tassels attached to office were never what she was interested in. Yeah. But I think she knew it meant a lot to him and watching him be hurt like that was painful for her. Mm. Do you think that's also part of the reason then why, you know, because at the end of season five, we see her kind of agree to that idea of almost rehabilitate her public image in a way and and go, yeah, let's do it. And so that's kind of as much for him as it is for them. I think she knows that it's important to be professional about this mm. if, if this is going to be her life. They, and there is a moment, I, I mean, you sort of have it as an actor as well, where you go, this isn't, you know, the school play anymore, that you have to turn into a pro and behave professionally and, and you know, have a stylist and get your makeup done. <laughs> and um, I, I thought they got a stylist on me today because last year I did my interview in a denim onesie and I thought, maybe they thought I needed a bit of help. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I feel that Camilla did that too. You know, we're related in that way that... That the wellies and and what she wore for mucking out the stables really wasn't suitable for her new public role. So she she turned pro, I think, in this season. And how are you? Me? I'm all right. My sister persuaded me to get a fake tan, so now I smell like the dog's blanket. <laughs> are you having any last-minute doubts? Not me. I'm in. For all of it? For whatever being married to you turns out to be. 
the importance of Camilla, even not in, you know, in, there in person, but on the end of the line, mm. which is, you know, is that kind of journey that we've had with the character, with her and Charles. We see her at the start of the season and then she almost kind of reverts back to being that support network on the, the other end of the line after the the death of, of Diana. And I'm so interested to find out for you as an actor, mm. how you approach that. Um, in my life, I am apart from my husband and children quite a lot away to work and, or he's away. And you learn to pick up the cues of what's going on, what's behind the, hi, how are you? No, everything's it's great. Yeah, can't really talk now. Um, and to hear, okay, that means the wheels are falling off. You know, the kids are, you know, both of them are sick and there's no one to help and there's no cowpole in the house, you know. And I think she's clearly very intuitive about what Charles needs. And also she had that benefit of distance. She could just, particularly with the boys, and I the way we're playing it she is a mother and has raised children and can put the family perspective mm. before the public and whatever crazy stuff must have been going on in the various palaces you know practical advice you know sort of times a great healer these things will ha they will happen yeah they couldn't get married and be together publicly so soon after you just had to yeah have a respectful distance but she had the sort of circumspection to say it'll happen just we just have to yeah give it time and a bit of space and then we do you know episode 10 you have the wedding <laughs> what was that what was the prep you know you, in terms of something like that this was her proper first public mm. facing outing really wasn't it mm. and to have that uh you know there for you to watch and to see yeah. how much did you dive into that because you've got you've got the scripts you've got you know amazing production hair and makeup and costumes and stuff but finding your place in between those two well I the bits of research I I did first of all we talked last season about this sort of 10 mile stare that Camilla had that she just seemed so troubled she in pictures you see of her quite often she's sort of her eyes are downcast and she's just looking with this kind of clearly uh, brain that's overloaded with troubles um, and then you see these pictures on the steps of of the, ver the various places she got married <laughs> um, and she's just smiling and the happy and I think there is a huge amount of relief in there. But just relief is done. You know, we're married yeah. now. It's done. Yeah. And for you, what was that idea of reenacting something that we all saw? Yeah. This was a proper public facing. Mm. Did you did you kind of forget about that in a way and just go by the script and, and, and give Listen, it... I got married above Bella Pasta on Shaftesbury <laughs> Avenue on a Sunday afternoon. Amazing! Yeah. And in this, I got married <laughs> at King's College, Cambridge, York Minster and the Rochester Guildhall. So, you know, I didn't have to Living do any imagining. Life. There was the <laughs> Worcester um, Cathedral Choir, the London Chamber Orchestra. Every time I moved, they started playing Handel's Water Music. <laughs> It was like a dream country. It was the wedding I never had. With all due respect to my lovely husband and my joyful wedding above Bella Pasta on Shaftesbury Avenue, <laughs> other pasta restaurants are available. It was lovely, 
But it was also lovely to marry Dominic West about 20 times in these amazing... I went back to... I was at university in Cambridge. If you picture the 18-year-old arriving with a couple of A-levels and a trunk full of hobnobs, going back there dressed as the Queen with my two nephews as as extras, uh, you know, in morning suits, it was the most surreal day and very happy. And everyone was just on such a high... It was beautiful. It was really fun and illegal amounts of fun. Yeah, I just had a great time. What was your reaction when you first read the script? Couldn't wait. (laughs) You know, one of the absolute joys, and I know that I'm sort of following what I ought to say, but I ought to say it because it's true. Hmm. What a privilege to stand in a room with some of the most highly skilled craftspeople in the world, fitting a dress to my shape. I mean, to my shape with a couple of, I I wear these sort of Camilla boobs, which I don't have boobs, but Camilla does. And so they give me these fabulous boobs to put on and then they fit a dress to me. And, And then they watch me walk around a room and go, no, no, we need to adjust that because when you walk, it does that. In these beautiful fabrics. And they, they had a feather expert, you know, like Mr. Feather came in to do my feathers real name yeah (laughs) and it was like it's astonishing I just stand there going I'm so lucky it's like the greatest couture designers of all time are working on me for for this costume for this show so I thank the crown for that if nothing else with the wedding did you and Dominic kind of did you talk much ahead of the the kind of filming of that or did or did you were you just in it and and you know kind of living it or did you talk much about what it meant to the characters you know what this kind of weird kind of crazy circus was around them finding the right place to be able to actually you know I I mean Stephen we have to talk about him because that you know whatever we thought or whatever we said he comes up to you in the morning will hold your arm and whisper something in your ear and it's just, oh, that, and then you go, okay, now I'm, that's what I'm doing. That's wow. that's how to do it. That's what I have to do. And and I did at one point go, go up to the guy playing Rowan Williams and go, has Stephen just held your arm and whispered this in your ear? Because I thought maybe he's saying that to everybody. But he came up to me and said, in New York Minster with all the choir and yeah. the orchestra, he said, today is all about you. <laughs> and I was like... Bet he says that to every actor, but um, <laughs> turned out he hadn't. He hadn't. So um, and yeah, I think he knew that for Camilla that would almost be a painful thing because she doesn't like being the yeah. centre of attention. Um, so it was just such a clever note because she is constantly giving up the the limelight to others around her, and I think she might actually find that quite uncomfortable. The other thing that we really had to play was the jeopardy of of what the Queen was going to say in her speech. Yeah. And there isn't had to be a nervousness about that. And I think for Camilla, it's still the jeopardy of, is there going to be acceptance? And there is, which was a beautiful moment. We were laughing with with Imelda saying that, you know, that last speech of hers was really sort of Imelda live at the Apollo. She stood up in front of this 500 extras and delivered that speech with every nuance, every time, all day, from 
eight in the morning until seven at night. And uh, yeah, she needs to do stand up, really. She was brilliant. In other news, there's a small family wedding in the Windsor area, which the police are keeping their eyes on. Chief Constable Darren Dead said he was hoping that displays of excessive exuberance would be kept to a minimum. You've enjoyed playing this character so much, so much. She's she's a gift that keeps on giving, Camilla. She really is because I think she really started off in such a dark place and has kept her counsel and kept her head when all about her were losing theirs. And uh, yeah, she's an example to us all. A word of thanks to Camilla. It can't have been easy for you either over the years. But your good cheer and warm humanity work wonderfully in your favour, both as a strength and stay for the Prince of Wales and as an addition to this family. Thank you for your patience and forbearance. So now, will you all raise your glasses to the young couple? Charles and Camilla. Now, as we see in the episode, navigating Charles and Camilla's nuptials was complicated. So here's Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, along with researchers Anna Cardin and Sophie Badman to tell us all about it. Why was it important to unpick this whole Charles and Camilla wedding, you know, in research and get it right on screen? And why is it such a big deal and a fitting ending, do you think, to The Crown for this to be part of the last episode? What I found astonishing with what Peter and Stephen have managed to do with 610 is it feels incredibly final. Like the last, we end in 2005. It feels like we're ending in 2023 or 2022 rather when she died. And I I don't want to spoil it if you haven't watched yet, but there are certain aspects to the Queen's narrative here that really make that time jump almost feel unnecessary. You know, the story can really end in this moment. And part of that too is we've just had our king crowned and we have our queen, Camilla, which everybody said would never happen. So... What's so fascinating about this wedding in particular is it is its constitutional implications, but it's also the relationship, I think, with monarchy and the public, the thawing of the relationship between Elizabeth and Charles, which has never really been easy mm-hmm. for them. And what you come to find when in doing this research, that I think something that I think initiated some of this was a sense of mortality for Elizabeth. What happens if you die? And whenever they started really talking about this, 2003, 2004. And a bachelor king takes over and his mistress walks behind him to be crowned. You know, that alone, I think, jolted her a little bit into, okay, we actually need to figure mm-hmm. out how this is going to work. Well, it's almost like you mentioned this in the previous chat, Annie, which was kind of when, you know, when the queen mother died, it almost kind of allowed the queen to move forward in a way, to kind of modernise, to not be held back by those such strict constitutional ideals. And I mean, Charles still has to ask the queen's permission to marry Camilla. Why does he need to do this? That comes down to the 1772 Royal Marriages Act. (laughs) So it's a very kind of, by today's standards, obviously archaic 
law, which was essentially put into place to protect the monarchy's line and making sure that there could be some kind of control over sort of elements marrying in and out mm-hmm. um, of the monarchy. So yeah, ever since 1772, senior members of the royal family have to have the sovereign's permission before they marry. Obviously, that's a bind for Charles at a time when it did take quite a long time for the Queen to come round to the notion of Camilla, waiting on the public to come round to the notion of Camilla as Charles's future wife and prospective potential at this point, only Mm -hmm. potential Queen. But then the Queen, it's not just a case of Charles asks the Queen and the Queen can say yes or no. She then has to speak to so many people before given permission. What did you find out about that process and what is that process? Well, good question. What is that process? Yeah. I mean, it'd be handy if we had a constitution nicely written down, wouldn't it? But um, um, she would then need to consult her prime minister and only with the kind of consent and advice of her government would she be then able to formally permit the marriage and extend her own permission to Charles. And, you know, that's something that, for example, famously with the abdication of Edward VIII when he wanted to marry Wallace Simpson, I mean, he was king at that point, but he came up against that precise constitutional dilemma. His mm-hmm. The then Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, officially did not give consent or government approval for that marriage. And so effectively sort of forcing his hand on abdication because constitutionally it would be disastrous for yeah. the monarch to act against the advice of, of their government. So in that sense, it's essential for the Queen to have the Prime Minister's, the government's permission, absolutely. And who else? Anyone else? Well, I mean, I don't know if Anna wants to talk a bit about the the church side of things, but... um, Yeah, as obviously she's the head of state and the monarch, but she's also the supreme governor of the Church of England. The Church of England, of course, being the church that was created by Henry VIII initially to help him break from Rome and allow him to, himself a divorced man, to marry a new woman. Um, But as supreme governor of the Church of England, the Queen has you know, a religious figurehead role at the head of Britain and therefore has to consult with the Archbishop of Canterbury and seek his advice as to how to play it, essentially, with the Anglican community in Britain. And given there'd been such a scandal around Charles and Camilla um, back in the day and public love of Diana, etc., etc., I think there was a worry that the upstanding Christians of Britain would would not feel comfortable Mm. necessarily with a fully Christian in-church remarriage. Um, so, so compromises had to be reached. I've always taken comfort in the knowledge that God retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Whatever short-term risk the marriage may present to the integrity of the church, one has to imagine it would do less damage than if I were to die. Well, it is going to happen one day. And my heir acceded to the throne while living in sin. In terms of the wedding itself, talk us through what they actually had to do to become husband and wife. Well, one thing that Prince Harry writes about in Spare is that he had a suspicion that it was his mother, Diana, from the heavens causing havoc with the (laughs) organisation of the wedding planning. Setback after setback after setback. Firstly, you had the fact that the Royal Marriages Act of 1772 that Soph mentioned earlier, which prevented a royal from getting married in a civil ceremony. But in tandem with that, you had the Archbishop of Canterbury saying it has to be a civil ceremony with a religious blessing afterwards. So you had this juxtaposition of 
terms that meant that essentially the wedding was a theoretical impossibility. So in order to get around that, some people have said that Tony Blair, he used the 2000 Human Rights Act, which states that any man and woman are free to marry and be happy and have a family or something like that as a legal workaround to say that the 2000 Human Rights Act overrules the Royal Marriages Act in this specific regard and therefore Prince Charles can get married in a civil ceremony. So that was kind of obstacle one. Yeah. Then there was a timings issue where they couldn't do the original date because the Pope died and the Pope's funeral was then going to be on the same day as the wedding. So they had to do a last minute date change. And then on the actual day, I think things went fairly smoothly. Yeah. Although um, it was kind of interesting sykes by royal wedding standards. I mean, it was quite a sort of unceremonious start in that, you know, the 28 guests for the Guildhall civil ceremony bits, obviously a very private thing, which wasn't televised, no one saw it. But, you know, you have all the public outside waiting and the arrival of William, Harry, Tom Parker Bowles, you know, Camilla's family, those guests, it was on a coach, Windsorian coaches, I think it was. (laughs) And I mean, that was kind of the first, I'd say maybe even just visual indicator that this was going to be a royal wedding that had totally kind of loopy different formulas to other royal weddings. In terms of that kind of religious side of it, you know, one of the reasons that they were given the kind of thumbs up by the Church of England was on the agreement that they would, well, tell me what, because we see a little bit of it within the the episode of when that religious ceremony is happening. I mean, they kind of have to repent their sins, yeah. basically, yeah. isn't it? It's well. Of- so this all came out of the fact that, it, you know, previously in Church of England kind of canon law, you, it was forbidden for two divorcees to marry if their former spouses were still living. Mm-hmm. This all changed in 2002. The kind of church parliament, which is called the General Synod, passed this change to the to the rule so that you could remarry mm-hmm. in a church service at the discretion of particular vicar. But in order to kind of mollify the more conservative elements of the church community, there were these kind of guidelines issued as to what they should use to measure whether this couple can can remarry. And, and there are sort of seven rules or questions they have to consider, a couple of which were really problematic for Charles and Camilla. One of them was, would this marriage be tantamount to consecrating an old infidelity, which clearly it was, and then another one was to do with the church's credibility as a witness to marriage. And, and and the question was, you know, would this marriage possibly cause any public scandal or conflict? And the Archbishop of Canterbury had to do a really careful balancing act between kind of finding a way of allowing mm-hmm. this to happen, but keeping that more conservative element in, within his own community happy. And lots of reports at the time indicated that the kind of compromise that had been reached was that those more conservative members wanted there to be some kind of act of repentance, Mm -hmm. like a public kind of admittance of wrongdoing from the couple as part of that ceremony. Um, Do we know what was said in that ceremony? Is it is it public knowledge or Yeah, I think we have the we have the prayer of penitence in preparation. (laughs) It's pretty full on, isn't it? It's very full on. And and were they kneeling? They were kneeling. They were kneeling. And it's the general confession from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is the strongest act of penitence that you can find. I mean, the way in the show, they're almost like one step away from like shame. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, where's the whips and stuff? It's kind of Mm. one step away from that because even the way that that Stephen Droldry shot it and the script that's written, 
you can see that there's an uncomfortableness amongst quite a few characters in those mm. scenes of going, what? I mean, I will just say that it starts with, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Bewail. Bewail. Who uses that word? Well, in- 1662. And it does, it requires the whole congregation to then repeat the general confession too, which I imagine some people were like, well, I have nothing to, (laughs) (laughs) you know. I've not done anything wrong. To bewail. I mean, listen, Charles could have gotten married in Scotland like Anne did, where you can get remarried as a divorced person in a church and that's fine, but it wasn't a possibility. It fundamentally wasn't because he's the future head of the church. Mm -hmm. And so he had to play ball. It's worth mentioning as well, when we were looking into this, we found that ironically, the reason that in the Church of England, it's prohibited as divorcees to remarry. Harks back to actually the 1950s and Princess Margaret and Townsend scandal. The Archbishop at the time put into practice a canon law um, called the I think it's the Act of Convocation, 1957. I think it had always been disapproved of in the Church of England, but it had not been written out in black and white. And but the scandal with Margaret and Townsend led the Church to prohibit the marriage of divorcees. So Charles. And Camilla were actually facing a kind of legal precedent that was set by his own auntie, which is who not, he loved. Yeah, which is not something that most of us can relate to, but it's kind of incredible that they had such a tough time getting around that. Wow. We also found that the public by this point, I think over 10% of marriages involved a, a divorced person. So the public were getting more comfortable with the reality of like modern life and yeah. divorce was more accessible more people were doing it so I think people were more sympathetic or growing more sympathetic to the idea that you can kind of love again and marry again Oh I could talk to you all for hours about this <laughs> <laughs> absolutely hours but um, Annie this is we're at the end we're at the end. we're at the end of the crown you have been I mean so central to obviously the show The Crown but for our podcast as well just in terms of how we have a enjoyed your company but b you've just given us so much information it's been extraordinary can you reflect yet on your experience in terms of what you might take away from this show and what you've done for what 10 years 10 years yeah i started in november 2013 i'm immensely proud of of what we've made I feel utterly um, grateful for having met the people I've gotten to work with for these 10 years, many of whom have been here for 10 years. The expertise involved in this show and the attention to detail is unmatched. And I'm also just very proud that I got to build a brilliant team of brilliant researchers who I will be working with and using for the rest of my life. (laughs) It's established a level of professionalism in every department that I just think is extraordinary and you see it on screen and I I think it's also opened up ways of using history to look for the more nuanced stories Mm -hmm. the the way that we've approached the material Mm -hmm. and worked together to try to find these subtleties and story I've never experienced that anywhere else and it's something I will take with me for the rest of my life Well, as you know, Sleep, Deary Sleep is the final episode of The Crown and the final podcast episode too. So, of course, we have to close with a man who started it all, writer and creator Peter Morgan. 
The real Queen Elizabeth II, whose remarkable life is, of course, the inspiration behind the series, passed away in September 2022. If you, like me and millions around the world, watched coverage of her historic funeral, you may have noticed there are echoes of that day in this final episode of The Crown, one piece of traditional bagpipe music in particular featuring heavily. Sleep, Didi, sleep. So when I sat down with Peter at his home for one last time, I wanted to find out about paying homage to Queen Elizabeth and taking inspiration from her funeral when creating the season finale. I remember sitting at home watching the funeral. I was on my own, actually. There are so many standout things that happened in the funeral, but, but for me personally, the standout thing was the piper. And it was so magical the way it was done and so instantly moving. Um, and profoundly moving. And it's also something that I know it was a choice that she made, you know. It was, if, if there was a Desert Island Discs moment, that would have been it. And so I thought, okay, let's let's incorporate that. And I, that's entirely imagined. Um, we don't know that that's what happened. We don't, I, I can't imagine a world in which she really did ask the Piper to play indoors um, <laughs> and come up with some greatest, you know, lament hits. I wrote that scene where she talks to the Piper in about three minutes. And those sorts of scenes are, when you write a scene so quickly, I don't, I don't think we ever changed a word of it. It's sometimes you just write a scene, you look at it, go, okay, I'll come back to that later and do it properly. You know, let me just put that down as a placeholder. Mm -hmm. I can see what that's going to do, but it's four o'clock now. I don't want to do any more. My head's, yeah. And somehow we never looked at it and thought we have to change that. Yeah. It went from being a placeholder to being shot. And to me, it's the most, I, I think it's my favorite scene in the episode. It might, it, it might be my favorite scene in the, in, in the season. You know, it, that's the moment that touched me the most. And of course, Stephen Daldry being the, the wizard that he is, <laughs> he promptly overcooked it with the girl bursting into song. And, <laughs> and it's just fantastic. It's so good. It's so good. Why was I it? did not think of that. That was not written. Was that Daldry? That was Daldry. Completely Daldry. Talking of Mr. Daldry, yeah. Why was it? Why was it important to get him back for this final episode? Oh, because you know, I, I would have liked him to have been there for every episode, but <laughs> but he, you know, that's not possible. And it's perfect that he came back mm -hmm. um, for the final episode, and uh, it meant it meant a lot to me personally. But it, it, it's also, you know, it returns the show to the original voices that started it you know, as a play. And that journey started in 2012. No, before that, 2011. You know, and so it's only right and, f right and proper. And, and it's perfect. And, and he did a beautiful job. Soldier, lie down on your epical store. It's not very broad. And it's not very broad, but it's better than And it's just this this wonderful thing of bringing back all the queens. You're kind of like, oh. it's so clever of her inner thought process, you know, of the kind of wranglings that she's going through of should I, shouldn't I? What are you thinking? You know, and, and the, the different sides to her, you know, the different versions of her, they've had to go through different things. 
Imelda's performance is just is so brilliant and so nuanced in this particular episode. And you know, when Olivia comes back and she's giving one opinion and then Claire's but and you're like, oh my God, this is this is everything I wanted and more. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about kind of writing that. Well, that that was always part of it. Yeah. That was that I, I think Did they all have to sign up for that? That was yes, what, when I, I, wanted... I went and approached them Did all you? Okay. some time ago. So I <laughs> I said, I've got this idea for how to do the final episode and that it's to bring all of you together. And initially my first draft of it was that it was the three of them. And that the queen, the old queen, Imelda, was flanked on either side. And I think it might have been Daldry who told me to break it up into two scenes. It was always, 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 that was what the episode was always going to be. Claire Foy came back to do a brief cameo in another season. I said to her, if I, Olivia, I rang up and I, I just rang her up and I said, look, I'm thinking of, she said, are you going to give me an extra scene? I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't even finish the sentence. I mean, I was just thinking, oh, are you going to write me a scene? Yeah. <laughs> and then Claire, I had to, Claire came in and so I went and saw her personally. Yeah, she was just as excited. And, and so I thought, right, okay, I've got the, I know they'll come mm-hmm. if I, yeah. So I'll, I'll write it now. A big part of the draw for both Claire and Olivia was the idea of doing a scene with with Imelda. They're both such admirers of hers. And I didn't need to do much persuading. You know, it was their respect for Imelda that got them to say, God, yes. You're almost 80 years old. So everyone keeps reminding me. Well, that's nearly 20 years past the retirement age for women. No need to go on. That's what I'm saying. No need to go on. The other thing that was always going to be the case was I thought, well, once I knew that, uh, that Olivia and Claire were both coming back, I thought, well, the scene can't be, you know, repetitious. It, it has to be distinctive. And then I thought, well, of the two, Olivia's going to be the one causing the trouble, <laughs> provoking mischief. Yeah. It would be Olivia. And then the one who would be saying, how can you be thinking such a stupid thing? Would be, you know, Claire would be more... Because she was closer, as the younger queen, she was closer to the moment where she'd made the oath. Yeah. And so she still had the 50s, the 1950s connection to, you know, and also just from another era, from that era. This system is a dreadful thing to inflict upon people. It's not natural. It's not fair. It's not kind. But you seem to thrive in it. And more importantly, it seems to thrive under you. So shouldn't you stay for every single day that you can? But what about the life I put aside? The woman I put aside when I became queen? What sort of question is that? For years now, there has been just one Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. If you went looking for Elizabeth Windsor, you wouldn't find her. That very final piece as well, which also has the teenage queen from that VE day section, which is... Brilliant. That's a lovely Daldry touch. I didn't oh. write that. I didn't think of that one. 
that was a beautiful touch by the director, Stephen Daltrey, giving the salute at the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely beautiful. Uh, those are always the best bits for me. The best bits are when something makes the final cut that I didn't write. You know, I'm so grateful for those bits because, you know, there has to be so much more than your own imagination. It's just not enough. Were you there when All Queens were filming? I was there. I was there for that. And I, I was certainly there for the final scene between Imelda and Jonathan Price. you know. In the, Another great scene. Yeah. This is all kind of wordly, you know, all this is going on, but then... Behind all that, or running alongside all that, you have the wedding, you know, Charles and Camilla. Yeah. Which has... You which know, they've waited over 30 years for. Yeah. Yeah. Which very, you know, in its own way is one of the great romances. You know, the arc of the final episode was always going to be, Charles is about to get married, the Queen asks herself, should she or shouldn't she step down? Given that he is now settled... He is now, you know, in his, I, I forget, mid to late 50s. He's in his prime. He's the perfect age to still have his own Karelian age. Now's the time. That debate, and that felt like a good final episode. It, 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 but it then grew when I suddenly thought, well, we have to incorporate the funeral somehow, yeah. or the death. Yeah. And since we can't show the death, because it's 18 years before she dies... Yeah. Well, actually, it was an idea that Stephen Daldry came along with, which is, what about the funeral? Can she be planning the funeral? And then we immediately started researching and found that it was 20 years before. And the reason we know that is because the consultant on the crown, Major David, he's a herald. Yeah. And so he was in the funeral planning committee. So he could he absolutely pinpointed that it was 20 years before she died that they started the first planning sessions. But this is the funeral of what we expect to be the longest serving monarch in history. People will want to celebrate your reign and mark the end of an era, not just here, but all around the world. So, I'd like to start with the logistical contingencies depending upon where the, uh, forgive me ma'am, the uh, death actually occurs. If it's abroad, ma'am, or here in the United Kingdom. I shall do my best to keep it local. <laughs> One thing as well that you touch on in this last episode is a kind of nod towards the, the Harry and William relationship and where there, there seems to be a, a, I don't know how, you know, number one and number two, that yeah. whole thing. And one's opinion is taken more seriously or considered more than the others sort of thing. Just wanted to talk about incorporating that in and... Well, again, this is one of those, it was one of those opportunities to have the two brothers, watching them get on and be close and be indispensable to one another is just incredibly touching, Yeah. given what's happened. And yet at the same time, being able to identify or hint at some of the fault lines that you suspect might, or some of the little cracks that will turn into fault lines. Mm. I enjoyed writing them. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I, 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 I really love those two actors. If she did, you know what else it would mean? It would be you next. That'd make you William the... Fifth. Better than second. He was assassinated by his brother. <laughs> was he? Who, would you believe, was also called <laughs> Prince Harry. He had William killed in a shooting accident and galloped off to Winchester to claim the throne for himself. <laughs> Don't worry, mate. I wouldn't do that to you. Is there something you're most proud of? From the show? I think, well, I, th I think two things. I, th I think the sheer harmony of it, 
I do really think that that is an extraordinary, given the challenges, given how much fatigue there is and how passionate everybody is, and given human beings, we're complicated creatures. Human beings are tricky. So I think the biggest achievement is this many human beings working together creatively and harmoniously. And I think the emotional temperature of the show and the generosity of the collaboration and the dignity of the show in the way that everybody on, on it behaved, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of. And on a personal note, writers are generally considered to be people who can only make sense of the world through reimagining it or recreating it with their imaginations and their pens. And we're in an age now where writers are being asked to step up and be more responsible and reliable. And, and the fact that we, again, I suppose the things I'm most proud of are the very human hurdles you have to overcome to actually make something like this. It's, it's really keeping it at a high level or at least the best level that you can do mm -hmm. within your, you know, if, if it drops, it's only because I wasn't good enough. It wasn't for lack of trying. Yeah. And so being able to show up and do that and not drop the ball or not let people down or not run away, uh, I suppose, when you want to. Yeah. And, and in the course of a commitment that long, you do want to. I um, just wanted to briefly mention your birthday cake that you received as well at one of the last days of shooting. Yeah. Which was in the shape of a typewriter, is yeah. that right? But had a specific collection of left numbers on the, the typewriter. Did it say 701 or something on it? Oh, yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> which was starting the new season that will never exist. No, they also accompanied it with a picture, a photograph that was taken of me as I was writing the first episode. Oh, wow. In which I looked so much younger. <laughs> <laughs> We're a dying breed, you and I. Oh, I'm sure everyone will carry on pretending all is well. But the party's over. The good news is that while Rome burns and the temple falls, we will sleep, dearie, sleep. Oh, you looked. <laughs> A piper's lament. Your sole musical choice. It's very you. And your coffin being driven in an old Land Rover is very you. Oh, you looked. I did. Well, I'll leave you to it. Say one for me. Well, that's a wrap. But before we go, I just wanted to say a few words about the experience of making this podcast. First up, there is a phenomenal team behind the scenes who've done the most brilliant job of producing and editing everything that you hear. So thank you, team, for your wonderful work. It's just been a joy to work with you. Now, we began this podcast for season three, and it's been the most fascinating, insightful, and hugely enjoyable journey. We've done around 120 interviews, which have allowed us to talk to the most talented storytellers about the 40 episodes that we've covered. For me, 
Having such a detailed insight into the creation of this landmark show really feels like a gift. I've learned so much. Almost feels like I've had some kind of qualification in top class production. It's just been wonderful. Some of the most memorable moments have included being invited to Elstree to watch filming, interviewing the cast on some of the most beautiful detailed sets, having the Royal Jet as my hair and makeup room, and being on location in cathedrals and country houses where Olivia Coleman introduced me to the plug-in hot water bottle, a revelation. But what I'm particularly proud of with this podcast is that we've been able to shine a spotlight on those immensely talented craftspeople, all those departments and creatives behind the scenes that make the show what it is. The detail that goes into the storytelling in this show is extraordinary. I particularly loved hanging out with Sid and Amy Roberts, who were responsible for the costumes from season three. I loved being in their company, and any time we were lucky to be at Elstree, their studio was my first port of call to hang out and have a cup of tea. We were welcomed with open arms by everyone, Netflix, Left Bank, and the Crown Crew. So thank you so much for making us feel so welcome. And special thanks to Peter Morgan, for inviting us to his home on numerous occasions to pick his brain about creating the show. I'm going to miss talking to these exceptionally talented people about The Crown. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed chatting. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. And I really do hope there is a next time. So it's goodbye from The Crown, the official podcast for now. I'm Edith Bowman. I'd like to give special thanks to my guests on this episode, Adriana Goldman, Olivia Williams, Annie Salzberger, Anna Cardin, Sophie Badman and Peter Morgan. The Crown, the official podcast is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. The executive producers for Netflix are Ray Vota, Charlotte Miller and Hannah Smith. Production from Left Bank Pictures by Georgina Brown, with special thanks to Annie Salzberger, Anna Basista, Una O'Byrne, and Suzanne Mackey. The executive producer is Simon Poole. The senior producer is Zoe Edwards. The assistant producer is Rebecca Adams. Additional production from Jennifer Mystery, Lily Hambly, Archan Mohile, Chika Ayres, Matthias Torresso, and Ed Gill. The sound engineer is Gulliver Lawrence Tickle. Music by Hans Zimmer and Martin Phipps.